Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. episode 88 rainwater interview rachel and teresa is there anything you'd like to say about uh in lieu of introducing rachel and uh why we're interviewing her sure (laughs) i uh well we kind of got introduced through uh another intentional community that gumby had been teaching classes at this past winter and fall i guess and um we Gumby set up an interview um, with Rachel, and we were welcomed uh, with just such great enthusiasm when we got to the Rainwater Collective, which is the name of the intentional community there. By a little group of feral kids. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, they were great, and uh, and Rachel was great too, and uh, and all of her friends that are hanging out there and living there, and uh, we got to have a nice tour of the place and um, see kind of the vision of the future of what they're trying to do and uh, had a nice meal too. It was it was actually a really nice experience. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, and Rachel is, um, I guess, founding um, a part of an intentional community they call Rainwater Collective. And, um, you know, escaping society, one of the things we're uh, – exploring is what that looks like, you know, from everything from primitive skills to how you take a crap to, uh, you know, tribe. Building community. Building community. You know, what does that look like? And one of the ways that can look like is an intentional community. And uh, yeah, um, this is our first time when we did this interview, this is our first day um, ever visiting the Rainwater Collective. And um, it's really rustic. Um, It's really um, homey. Yeah, I saw a lot of potential there, and we, uh, as Teresa said, we really enjoyed our visit. So, um, is there anything else you want to add to our intro here, Teresa, before we uh, um, share our interview? Yeah, I think that's it. I just keeping it short and sweet. All right, here we go. All right, Rachel, so to start us off, um, I would love to hear, as a way of introduction, like anything you can tell us about like your personal story as far as what led you to explore these kind of alternative ways of living and um, especially any stories you've got about your past where like you were uh, roughing it or uh, you know any other intentional communities you've explored or just what it what kind of led you here the way you'd tell that story sure um, let's see I um, okay so I'm 35 and Oh, I would say probably from the time I was a young adult, I was tuned into there being something wrong <laughs> mm. with global industrial capitalist society. Like it just, you know, 
um, I was connected to the ways that it's colossally unjust and leads to a lot of alienation and is ugly and um, is destroying a lot of the earth. But I didn't, I didn't particularly have any bead on any way of changing it or making it better. Um, and I was kind of on this career track of becoming a psychologist, um, which is my job now, and sort of thinking like, oh, well, you know, I'll help the world through science, <laughs> which I later became quite disillusioned with. Um, the way that I got onto the track of permaculture and intentional communities about eight years ago, I visited Living Energy Farm in Virginia, and I heard just a talk that um, Alexis gave about climate change and it was like I was hit by a train about the way that we are in the middle of a mass extinction and just headed for um, a possible outcome of, of uh, it, it, you know, killing most of the sentient life on Earth. Hmm. Um, and so it was sort of this moment where it hit me emotionally in such a way that I couldn't continue to be a healthy, functional person unless that became what my life was about. So that was when I sort of reorganized my life to be about um, intentional community, essentially, as, as one of the many necessary answers to that question. So creating cooperative culture and finding ways to live that aren't participating in um, global industrial capitalism. Yeah, I... Uh... Like, I, I agree that, like, being a part of tribe is one of the, I think, the things we're missing the most. And also, um, one of the things I admit that I'm the worst at. And um, I was kind of curious when you were saying that, um, what's it like being a practicing psychologist and uh, also kind of living the way you are? Like, <laughs> do, do they kind of, do they jive together? Like, what are the, the people you talk to? Like, how does that affect your, your, your work? Yeah, it's interesting. They don't drive together very well, <laughs> um, particularly because I work for a government agency, <laughs> um, you know, uh, working with veterans. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I find that I can I can bring most of myself into my actual work as a therapist with um, my patients. But in my role as a professional and government employee, almost none of the things that I care about can be brought into that role. Um, because that, that role and that culture is very predicated on continuing things as they are um, and, and sort of like a very constricted notion of what's normal and what's acceptable in terms of adult behavior. So it's uncomfortable, for sure. I, I am not able to be myself mostly in my work mm. life. Um, and that's uh, just sort of like something that I have. I just kind of manage, you know, I just kind of like make sure that I'm finding ways to feel like I'm connected with people in real ways outside of that role. And I know that when I'm in that role of like, I'm a professional psychologist, I'm sort of wearing a suit, you know, wearing like a costume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned, Rachel, you mentioned about intentional community. So why intentional community? Why not just have your own little patch of land and just start living off grid? Well, this has to do with uh, the idea of land ownership <laughs> <laughs> and the idea of access to land and access to resources, mm -hmm. um, as well as the need for us to relearn how to live interdependently and cooperatively, mm -hmm. right? So our culture, um, if you can even call it a culture, our, our society, our way of living in sort of mainstream 
uh, Western culture is, is incredibly alienated from interdependence, from people getting their needs met together cooperatively. Yeah. Um, and my view is that that's a, inseparable mm-hmm. from the systems that are destroying the planet. And so if we're going to be able to live as part of an ecosystem, we have to be able to depend on the earth. And we also have to be able to depend on each other. So intentional mm-hmm. community is, is a way of learning how to do that together. And it's also a way of sharing ownership and responsibility for land that kind of unravels and disrupts the individual ownership mm-hmm. paradigm and, and makes it so that people can have access to land without having access to capital. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Teresa and I have had a lot of discussions about um, the problems with tribe, like you know, I feel like one of the, the underlying causes of so many of the problems in our culture is the absence of tribe. And when I look at the history of our culture, there's this concerted effort to break tribe. Mm-hmm. Whenever we encounter another culture, like one of the first things is to find ways to divide the tribe mm-hmm. from the Land Allotment Acts to all the things in, in United States history and beyond mm-hmm. um, to what happened to the Irish. I mean, it's just it's such an old story mm-hmm. that uh, our culture figured out a long time ago, like if you want to really absorb and beat a, uh, another culture, you got to break the tribe. Mm-hmm. So we've had a lot of discussions of like, how realistic is it to reestablish that tribe? Um, I feel like we're so wired, you know, like your parents and their parents and their parents, you know, it's been so long since we've had any real tribe. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're infused with kind of a, an individualistic capitalist mindset of like, you know, what I do for my neighbor is mainly um, do my job, my selfish job, and then I pay my taxes and the government's supposed to take care of my neighbor and I paid my taxes so my hands are clean. And that's so uh, non-tribal. And I've uh, I've visited like several intentional communities and I see that struggle, I feel like, show up in a lot of forms. Like there'll be a disagreement between two people. And I would imagine in a real tribe, like where there's no other alternative, you work that shit out. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to. Mm-hmm. It's like if, you know, what's more important, this person offended me or that now I have to hunt a buffalo all by myself, you know? Right. So I wanted to hear your thoughts as somebody that's kind of uh, had experience with intentional community and uh, um, maybe facing some of these challenges that come up. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Like, how do you handle all these people that I almost feel like now you're, you almost have to kind of play a role, you know, in a way, because we all know that if it gets hard, if we choose something else, we just back out and go to Pizza Hut, get a job, you know, rent a house. Mm -hmm. We can pull the plug at any time. Mm -hmm. So how do we have that tribe, that real tribe without necessity? Right. Man, I think you really nailed, nailed it on the head. Um, Especially as white people, especially as people who's, who have many generations deep of, um, of being separated from indigenous culture, mm-hmm. from our indigenous heritage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, we've lost a lot of social forms and social traditions that would have helped people navigate those problems. So, for example, this morning we had a two-and-a-half-hour meeting where we were all sitting together and trying to figure out, like, okay, how are we going to manage the labor of cooking and cleaning in the kitchen together? And we came up with a, you know, a, a sign-up sheet and a set of agreements about it. And all of that we're having to do from scratch yeah. because we have no cultural experience of yeah. you know, unrelated people living in a household and cooking together, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in um, an intact indigenous culture, you would have had people you know, managing this kind of shit for thousands of years, and there would be all kinds of unspoken 
social structures in place that would help people navigate it. So it, it's it's tough. We're having to build it intentional. That's the intentional part. We're having to build it from scratch. Mm-hmm. And I also really dig what you said about the the importance of a feeling of necessity. Yeah. A feeling that we need each other. We're not just sort of choosing to do this thing together for fun. We need each other to survive. Which is actually the real situation that Pizza Mm -hmm. Hut insulates us from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Pizza Hut um, pretends to meet our needs. And it provides the illusion that one person can have their needs be met just by spending money. Yeah. But A, those needs don't actually get met. If, if Pizza Hut is your tribe, you feel desperately empty inside, <laughs> and yeah. you turn to all these addictive behaviors to fill those needs. Yeah. And and B, um, Pizza Hut's not always going to be around. <laughs> yeah. So we actually desperately need to be forming these kinds of relationships and these kinds of interdependencies um, for for any hope of human culture to persist into the future. Yeah. Well, as you were talking, I was, uh, you've seen the matrix, right? Mm-hmm. I was thinking of that scene with Cypher, you know, where he, uh, betrays the, the team members who have all woken up from the matrix and he's sitting there with like the agent, agent Smith or one of the other agents. And he's, you know, about to go back into the matrix and believe the matrix again. And he's saying, you know what, this tastes like steak. And he's eating the, the simulation of steak and you know, that's all I need. So to me, that's kind of the challenge is like, I agree with the truth of like, Pizza Hut kind of provides a buffer from the reality that we need each other and all this like climate change, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, just the whole veil coming down on us right now Mm -hmm. is in large part showing us that we need each other. We can't act like this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, beyond the, the, the commune, the intentional community, the tribe need each other as far as the trees, all the other beings. And, uh, yeah, I see that as the temptation to be cipher. You know, like, well, I understand what you're saying, but Pizza Hut feels like real food, mm-hmm. you know, and like this person, like I can't get along with Annie in the intentional community. So screw Annie. You know, I can just go and like get on Tinder, you know, blah, 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 mm-hmm. pick people, dispose people. Ooh, can I add to yeah, that? please. I, th- I think that temptation to be cipher. Uh, so one of the reasons why the one of the reasons why I love having a mission and living in a place where I'm specifically connecting with um, people that grew up poor or people that are poor now is that that temptation and the idea of like, oh, I can just easily sort of meld back into the matrix is actually really only available to people who have generational wealth, Mm. right? The idea that you can just get a job that isn't Mm -hmm. soul destructive and that pays you a living wage, like that's available to a smaller and smaller and smaller percentage of society. Um, and, you know, practically speaking, you don't see that many folks that actually have access to that trying to live this way. You do see some folks who are able to to make that shift, but there actually is a huge part of our society that doesn't have access to that matrix. That, that really the only job that's available is working at Pizza Hut, which is not as fun as eating at Pizza Hut. Mm-hmm. And so, which isn't very fun either. Right. And so, and so this is partly for them, right? Like it's it's for those of us who actually the matrix isn't isn't working. It's not yeah. even it's not even pretending to work or feeling like it's working, which is like working class people and people of color. Well, I got to ask if that's true. I mean, I think it's true for us, the three of us sitting here around this iPad. Mm-hmm. But do you think that's true on a wider level, like to a let's say the majority of the population in our culture? And if it is true, what keeps them doing it? How come everybody's not living out of their van or in an intentional community by now? Mm-hmm. I get a lot of phone calls. So I get two or three phone calls a week from people who just stumble across the rainwater page on the IC.org directory. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and the vast majority of those phone calls are from somebody saying like, hey, I want out and I didn't know there was another option. Yeah. I didn't know there was a way to get out. Yeah. Right. So our, uh, you know, cultural and media landscape is very good at preserving the illusion that there is no other way. There's no other way to meet your needs besides money. Yeah. Wow. I love that you said that. That's exactly what prompted us to start doing this podcast is to, (laughs) you know, we're thinking like we haven't got it figured out this whole like nomadic thing, Mm -hmm. but, uh, we want to show people there is another way. Mm-hmm. Like you're not stuck. You are choosing it. So you mm-hmm. could choose something else. So I love love what you said there. Yeah, and I was looking on the Intentional Communities website. We were <laughs> we were trying to find your address. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, it's okay. We got here. We got here. We're cool. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I noticed on there, uh, there were, I couldn't remember the names of the people, but you were mentioning some people that were your influences that you really admired. And you said something like, uh, we need to be trained on consensus. Mm-hmm. And so to further that, like if someone becomes a member what are your expectations of them and how is this group governed? Mm-hmm. Good question. So um, the plan for now, you know, this is a forming community. So a lot of this stuff is like open to figuring it out as we go. Um, uh, but the plan for now is to use consensus as a model of governance, um, which means essentially um, folks joining the community agree to endeavor to a cultural and personal shift from thinking about decision-making in terms of what's best for me mm-hmm. to thinking about decision-making in terms of what's best for the group. Hmm. And then making that cultural shift allows you to make decisions together as a group based on, okay, as a group, what do we decide is best for the group? Which is how most human cultures have made decisions yeah. throughout most of human history, probably, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but it's very alien to <laughs> our mm-hmm. European ancestor culture, um, at least for the last couple thousand years. So, so that's the plan as far as governance. Yeah. And then um, as far as membership process, there's kind of this accumulated wisdom in the community's movement that you need to have a long membership process to enable people to have time to make that cultural shift because mm. it just can't happen overnight. Hmm. And also to, to ensure that there's like some level of compatibility in terms of your vision and values and what you want to create and also just like liking each other. Yeah. You have to like each other. <laughs> so, it's even hard between me and Gumby. I mean, Gumby always says I talk shit about him. But, <laughs> but it's because it's true, and I recognize that. You made it almost 15 minutes. I know, I know. But I, I was just thinking, as you were saying that, like, even in just, a, a, what is this called, a didactic or something, two people. Mm-hmm. So you've got two people that... Theoretically, we do like each other, and it's still hard. Theoretically. Theoretically. Most of the time. Yeah. For the most part, we do, and it's still really hard to break out of that mindset of like, well, I don't really feel like getting up and making coffee this morning. And she didn't. And and he did. Oh, because he's an angel. (laughs) <laughs> see that that they call that glue yeah. in the world you guys have glue it goes a long way to smoothing but, this shit out but yeah it's it's so true so thank you for for yeah. saying that and for sharing that i mm-hmm. find and to kind of i wonder if this is true of both a larger community because i don't have much experience with a larger community uh at all other than failures mm-hmm. and There's uh a lot of failures yeah and well, I don't have much experience with one other person other than failures either. <laughs> but one thing I, I found that helps me and Teresa is 
I feel like we both uh, really own how imperfect we are. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it helps us be more forgiving. So mm-hmm. I see a lot of relationships fail. And when I talk to the people involved, why they failed, sometimes it's for good reasons. Sometimes we just had different visions. We had to go our own way. We're still friends, yeah. um, which I applaud. I think that's a really mature way to, to look at it. But I see a lot of people hate their partner, you know, really have this resentment. And underneath that, there's this kind of feeling like I was right and they were wrong. And I feel like Teresa and I both spend so much time not feeling right, questioning ourselves. That we we're ain't like, right. Oh, you fucked up. Well, I fucked up and I'm probably going to fuck up again in about five minutes. So yeah. is that a, is there any truth in that? And like having an intentional community run, like, um, I don't know. Is there just anything of that, like speak to you about the intentional community or is it different? So much. Yeah. I think you're making just another really important observation, mm-hmm. um, which is just that, yeah. So when I'm, when I'm thinking about like who I want to be a member of this community, that's, that's the most important criterion is the ability to receive corrective feedback mm-hmm. about your behavior and, and receive it non-judgmentally and, and non-defensively and, and shift, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think, it also speaks to the role of, of, you could say, spirituality or some kind of healing or personal practice that, yeah. that allows you to have a sense of yourself as good, like basically good, have some sense of worthiness that isn't about whether or not you washed the dishes, right? So that you can hear feedback about whether or not you washed the dishes that, that doesn't, you don't have to defend yourself because it's not about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you have this core of goodness so you can like be more flexible about the other stuff. So I think that's a big part of like what all these, um, you know, cultural shifts are about too, is giving people those kinds of tools. Yeah. And I also feel like intentionally so our culture kind of wires us in the other way because the more we're entitled and the more we're feeling like, you know, the offended party, I think it makes us better consumers because it definitely keeps us apart. Yeah. And if we're apart, you know, we're going to be more insecure because we're not meant to do like, you know, we've both had uh, family trauma this year of one one kind or another. And what comes up to me when these things happen is we are not meant to do this shit by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, uh, raising a kid, uh, the death of a, a parent. Um, just processing any of the stuff that we're all going to go through. It's part of the human experience. And it's so unnatural going through that yourself or watching somebody else go through it and just realizing they are not meant to carry this weight by themselves. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I suspect a lot of that uh, that construct that, that keeps us separate. You know, I, I see a lot of it in the news now where uh, – and feel free to jump in here with any, like, thoughts about, uh, like, things you disagree with what I'm about to say, but mm-hmm. – one thing that pops up a lot to me when I'm watching the news is uh, racism. Mm. There is racism. It is a problem. But it, when I watch the news, I feel like it gets exaggerated. Mm. I feel like, you know, I read Howard Zinn, The People Speak. I just read that pretty recently. One thing I loved about Howard Zinn, who's considered like a uh, real spokesperson for the left. You know, a lot of people on the, the left will, you know, Howard Zinn. And sometimes I wonder if you read this book because mm-hmm. he over and over is saying like, the poor whites and the poor blacks had a common enemy. And anytime they started figuring that out, that became a big threat. And the rich started saying, oh, well, look how different you are, though. Mm. Like, oh, you poor whites, you know why you're poor? Those black people are stealing your jobs. Look at these Mexicans coming across the border. They're the ones threatening you. And over and over, we get distracted from the people that keep too much. Mm -hmm. So what the hell was I talking about? (laughs) Well, I do do have an opinion. Yes, please. (laughs) Um, I think, okay, I I see it two two ways at the same time. Um, I don't think that racism is exaggerated in the media. Actually, everything that I've ever done in terms of studying and learning 
as a, as a white person coming to this, not having personally experienced racism, every, every learning that I've ever done has sort of like deepened my appreciation of the way that racism and white supremacy is super baked in to our culture in ways that otherwise without that work would be tremendously invisible to me. And, and there is this thing that happens in our conversations and our dialogues, especially about race, but about every kind of social change, where um, in places of overwhelming um, insecurity and fear and shame, especially for white people, but also for everybody, it's really easy to get into sort of a black and white uh, judgmental sort of like figuring out who's the problem and punishing that person mode. Mm. Um, and lose track of the fundamental underlying reality, which is that everybody is a human being who's trying to be happy and doing the best they can in a really difficult situation. Mm -hmm. And the things that are causing problems in our culture is not just individual bad people, but more so systems. Mm. Systems that are, that are in place, that are deliberately constructed in order to keep us separate. Mm -hmm. And too much of a focus on individual bad people, like that person is the problem. That cop is a bad apple and needs to be removed from the police force, takes us away from a focus on systems. Mm -hmm. And so focusing on the system of white supremacy can help us change it together as a culture. And it can also help us come from this place of compassion. We're like, we're each born into different locations in this system, but the problem is the system. Yeah, I actually agree with you. I think I uh, maybe worded that badly in what I said before that, because uh, Teresa and I were just talking not long ago about Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people bring up him as the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And I was bringing up something very similar to what you just said of, uh, you know, if we were Jeff Bezos, like, I would imagine, like, what would Jeff Bezos say to that? And he might say, well, you know, I took this opportunity, and, yeah, I'm benefiting hugely from it, but you know what I've donated to? What have you done for the world? Mm -hmm. Like, I helped this whole community of children learn how to read. I built wells in this third-world country. And, uh, yeah, that led me to think just what you said. It's the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you ever read Daniel Quinn? No. Wow. Daniel Quinn's got a lot of cool uh, stuff that I think you'd you'd be interested in. But one of the things I like that he said, going back to what you were talking about with intentional community and the necessity of tribe, is uh, he was talking about the difference between laws, laws, I say with quotey fingers, um, in a tribe, like the, the culture they create, it's formed naturally, organically. It's what works, mm -hmm. you know, it naturally evolves rather than anything being imposed. There's no arbitrary committee like, oh, let's make this law. Like, it's all makes sense, so there's very little uh, reason to rebel, mm -hmm. and that's something I think a lot about with that, uh, the necessity of tribe and, and how to make mm -hmm. it, how it could work. And and the there's sort of like an underlying systems thing to that, which is that when um, laws or, or rules or agreements or social structures originate from a bottom-up, mm -hmm. they originate at a smaller scale they make more sense. Mm -hmm. mm. And so part of what's going on with global industrial capitalism is, is we have systems that only are at large scales. We've lost our medium scale and small scale systems, Yeah. right? We have the family system and then we have the government. We have nothing in between. We have no village systems. Yeah. So we don't have anything that actually feels organic and natural to us. It feels like coercive force, which is what it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. We never have a chance to really figure it out on our own. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about uh, land ownership, and you've already kind of talked a little bit about that, so I don't know if this will be repetitive or not, but if anything uh, new occurs to you as I say this, like uh, I'd love to hear your opinion on it. But one of the reasons why Teresa and I are living the way we are is uh, 
you know, we had a talk and we got together and we're thinking like, let's just take a risk and do something that, that is meaningful to us rather than, uh, you know, we were both working when we got together and I was renting a trailer and we were like, none of this stuff feels right. We don't believe in it. We're kind of scared to do something else because we don't know if it'll work. So let's try it. And one of the things we talked about was land ownership. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had come to believe, like, really resent land ownership. I see the necessity of it, like we were talking about before I turned this on, about uh, one of the things I miss is uh, having a yard. You know, I, I was thinking my yard meant owning it as in objectifying it, which it does in one sense. But it's also like, my dog or my <laughs> father or mm-hmm. my brother as in a relationship mm-hmm. too. Or and you being it's. Yes. It yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. That two way, two way relationship. And I missed that part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I recognize something, something's incomplete with my philosophy here. And, uh, but I also don't want to own land because at the same time, I feel like as soon as I start paying taxes on land, as soon as property, whether I see it this way or not, but other people are perceiving it as this is your property, I feel like I'm empowering a paradigm, a way of seeing things, a game that I feel like is already way too strong of just objectifying everything, whether it's other races of people, animals, land, right. women, right. Um, and I don't want to feed that paradigm. So I've struggled with that. And I'm just wondering if, uh, you know, without being repetitive, um, if there's any other thoughts you have on on what I just said. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, I can't remember if I saw it on your website or if I heard you mention it another time that I've met you. But I heard you say something like, um, maybe you can correct me on this, something like uh, you can either be a settler or something like owning land makes you a settler and I don't want to be a settler. Mm. Sounds like something I might have said. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it's something like you can either live in a place or you can be a settler and I don't want to be a settler, right? A settler meaning somebody who comes to a place where there's an existing thriving ecosystem that includes humans and then brings the institution of property and says, okay, now I own this, Yeah. right? Which is what happened in the history of of our country. So, and, and it was obviously enormously devastating mm-hmm. for human well-being and for ecosystem well-being and for cultural well-being. Mm-hmm. We're still grappling with the enormous moral wound of having done that mm-hmm. as, a, as a culture. So, yeah, and the other thing that you just mentioned that, that really, like, rang a bell for me is that participating in the, the institution of private property, it's the same institution that makes it possible to own an acre of land that makes it possible to own a human. Mm-hmm. The, the underlying idea of ownership of something that's alive. It's like yeah. a way of seeing things. Right. Mm-hmm. You're taking something that's alive and you're making it an object. Mm-hmm. And, and land is alive. It is, you know, it's a web of sentient beings that has its own uh, personhood, <laughs> right, that mm-hmm. we've lost track of. So that's why intentional community is such a, is such a deep passion for me is it's like one possible answer for how we can be rooted in place and have that sense of connection with place that seems to be like a really important part of healing for people. Like as humans, we're built to have connection with our places. Um, That makes it also possible for another person to come and have a connection with that same place. And so that idea and sort of anti-capitalist ideas in general is is why this community is founded as, as like a radically affordable community. So 
there's like some luck that went into that being possible. But, mm -hmm. but the idea that like somebody could come and join this community regardless of their access to capital. So we're not drawing a line around this land and saying like, you can only be related to this place if you have capital, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I.e. if you're from a white upper middle class family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I kind of toyed with the idea, what was it, last summer? I was thinking oh, that, um, I was thinking, you know, and it's really, it's, it's kind of one of those things where I don't think I can personally justify it, mm -hmm. um, but it is a great alternative for some mm -hmm. who, you know, might not be able to afford their own land, but like you said, can still come here, here and participate. Well, let's say that people, there's somebody listening to this very podcast interview, and they're not quite ready to live off grid or hobo it up like Gumby and I are doing. <laughs> what are some ways a person who lives in a house or an apartment or mobile home, something like that, can move towards deindustrialization, escaping capitalism, and get into relationship with the earth? I recognize that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, the reason why I wanted to, to talk about that is because um, a certain s section of people encounters something like this, and the immediate thing they feel is guilt. Mm -hmm. because there's structural reasons and just personal emotional reasons why they can't chuck everything and go live in the woods in a van, right? Or, or go live in an intentional community. A lot of folks just can't do that right now. Um, and, and so it can be this kind of like further separation and alienation. Of mm. Like, oh, I guess I'm one of the bad ones who's just destroying the earth and I'm just doomed to be one of the bad humans. And that's, I think it's really important to take a, a to take a soft and compassionate relationship with yourself when it comes to this kind of thing. Again, especially for those of us that were born into a really alienated culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, yeah, lots of little things. I mean, if you're, you know, using potable water to flush the toilet, you can start catching gray water and using gray water to flush the toilet. That's like a pretty easy thing to do. Put a bucket in your shower and now you're not using water that could be used for drinking to yeah. flush your shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. like one tiny little moral problem that gets solved or like with a, a bucket. A plastic pan in the sink if you're doing dishes right. and then use that right. water. Right, right. So when you take a friendly, compassionate relationship with yourself about it, all of a sudden it starts to feel like, oh, there's all these opportunities to do something that feels good. Mm -hmm. You know, I can, um, I can start collecting my compost. I can, uh, I can find a tree in my neighborhood and go and visit that tree every day. And even if I feel awkward about it or it's weird or my neighbors are looking at me, I can just sit there and be with the tree and be like, hey, I'm an organism and you're an organism. Mm -hmm. And and if you do that every single day for a year, something's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? You don't have to make it happen. It'll yeah. happen. Your body is designed to have that kind of relationship. So that way it can become like, uh, you know, my psychologist self, I'm saying, you're moving towards something that feels good. You're doing appetitive conditioning rather than aversive conditioning. Mm, yeah. Where like, I'm bad and I need to solve all the bad problems mm. so I can stop being bad. Right. If you can start from this place of like, oh, I'm actually already good. It's just that there's all these oppressive systems disconnecting me from my goodness. And what are some little ways I can start reconnecting with my goodness and the earth's goodness? That's a really good point. Yeah, we were uh, we just did uh, an episode not long ago called Hobo Zen, and I've got a big part of my heart for uh, Buddhism. Oh yeah, and, um, Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> you probably recognize that in what I was just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was like 
reminding me of like the the teaching that we're already the Buddha and the thing that keeps us from being awake, which is different than woke. <laughs> but but being awakened is that that intervention of things, you know, that we're already like connected. And uh, yeah, I really like a lot of what you were saying because I uh, I see a lot of um, posts on Facebook, and I used to be one of these people very recently that uh, would really go railing against the corporations until I started realizing, like, the bigger system is the problem. You know, what is the corporation without the people who are creating the need that they're supplying the demand? So you can kind of blame – Ted Kaczynski actually said something really cool about this. Um, <laughs> he was saying, like, if you want to be a revolutionary, there's two ways of looking at things when you're dealing with people. You can either blame the people for allowing themselves to be fooled, which is going to drive the people away and will hurt your revolution – or you can, like, blame, you know, the corporations for fooling the people, which, of course, both ways are not quite embracing the, the systemic, you know, view. But, yeah, I like what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, to kind of switch topics and uh, go back to anything about um, intentional community or any of the other things we're uh, talking about, if you think about them, but... Um, one of the things I see out here, you know, we're visiting um, Rainwater Collective, and a lot of it looks like it's kind of, uh, I don't know how much of it is intentional or how much of it is just kind of practical, but uh, not a lot of technology. Like, we were kind of kidding um, with, you know, we were having a lot of trouble um, coordinating this interview because <laughs> you've given up one kind of technology, I've given up another kind of technology, so it was sort of a struggle to kind of match those up. Um, so I'm wondering your views on technology. I figured you'd be a good person to ask about technology and, um, what role do you see it having now with how it affects us, what place it's playing in our culture and, um, Mm -hmm. where do you wish it was headed? Oh, yeah. Good question. Um, Okay, so it depends on what we mean by technology. Mm. Okay, yeah, let me define that a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, I do divide that between, like, somebody making a bow Mm -hmm. or somebody... um, I feel like there's something unique about our type of technology. Um, And I've explored this a little bit, and I, I, I looked... Like, what do I mean underneath? What is a technology a manifestation of? And I feel like, to me, what divides the computer and the cell phone from the bow and the hand drill is discontent. The bow was good enough. Everybody's, you know, nobody's looking for the new model of bow. They don't expect it to upgrade next year. Um, Maybe somebody, who knows how this works. I feel like our culture might not even be able to wrap our minds around how people used to learn, whether it came through a vision, a dream, uh, a tree told someone, you know, things that the way we're taught don't quite make sense. Even if we, you know, want to believe it, we're just not there with the way we're raised. And our technology never is good enough. Anything we have, which we're taught is the best technology that's ever existed in possibly the entire universe. If it didn't get better next year, it would be a failing. So to me, the only thing you can describe that if you boil it down to what's the essence of that is extreme discontent. Nothing is ever good enough. Craving. Yeah. So that's, does that help with what I mean by technology? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're describing the basic formula of industrial capitalism, which is like, <laughs> you should be happy all the time. If you're not happy, something's wrong. And the solution to that problem is a product. 
Mm. And the solution to that problem is a product that's ever changing. And by the way, things are constantly getting better. So like the myth of progress that we're just going to keep on solving problems until everybody's happy all the time. So all of those are really flawed assumptions. They don't correspond with reality about how human experience is. Mm -hmm. Right? So um, my way of thinking about technology is really informed by the concept of appropriate technology. So appropriate technology is something like a bow mm -hmm. <laughs> or a bicycle, maybe, or a water filter that's made of a terracotta pot with sawdust baked into it, mm -hmm. or meditation is a type of technology. Yeah. It's a social technology, a, yeah. a psychological technology. It's How does meditate? I've never seen meditation like as a technology. How does that, how would you fit that? Like if meditation is a technology, can you distinguish meditation from something else that's not commonly thought of as technology like... God, what? But what's something else? Uh, yoga? But I guess you'd consider that a technology if meditation's a technology, right? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I want to like stake a claim on the conceptual boundaries of it in that way. Yeah. Um, but but more what I was trying to point out is like the the distinction between technologies that serve human well-being and technologies. This is really important to me. Technologies that can be um, held by the people. And owned and replicated by the people. Yeah. Right? So I can teach somebody how to meditate. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been taught enough that I can teach it. I can make a bow. I can teach somebody how to make a bow. Yeah. A solar cell panels. Phone, <laughs> a, even a solar panel, yeah. you can't make that yeah. without depending on an entire vast infrastructure mm -hmm. that's inherently... Um, coercive. Which is true of the bicycle, too. Forceful. Yeah, I'm, that's why I put a little question mark on yeah. the bicycle. <laughs> I mean, we could probably make a bicycle that, that's uh, that's non-coercive. There's a, I, I kind of have this opinion about metal where there's enough metal out of the ground now mm -hmm. where metal maybe wasn't an appropriate technology mm -hmm. 5,000 years ago, but it is now. But because, how would you make the tire? Because we have plenty of it. Uh, I, bet, I bet you could find a way to make a tire. You can wrap a rope around a, a, a wheel and make a tire. Wow. Anyway, I don't know. I don't want to stake a claim on that either. <laughs> I'm not a, a, not a bicycle expert. Better have a callous scrotum to ride that bike. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, maybe that's a form of technology. <laughs> um, so, okay, so that's one idea. Like the concept of appropriate technology, technology that we can hold mm. without giving up our power and depending on a system that's it's evil, hmm. yeah. right? Depending on rare earth minerals that come from mines that children work in, right? Yeah. Which our cell phones depend on. So it sounds like you're dividing it, and correct me if I'm wrong, like... The industrialization is the exactly. one type of technology yeah. that comes out of factories yeah, yeah. versus like, you know, everything from the uh, indigenous person to the homesteader. Right. Even the homesteader sometimes would go to the village and buy like a few, sure. you know, an axe or yeah, something. Yeah, depending but... on other people. And and the really important thing about that is that sometimes people get the wrong idea about, um, you know, primitive skills or, or permaculture that like, oh, you're just trying to go back to the past. Mm -hmm. And like the problem with these technologies isn't that they're new we're actually going to need a shit ton of new technology because we're in a global situation that's never happened before, yeah. right? We have to figure out how to survive as a species through a mass extinction. Humans have never been through a mass extinction before. We're going to need a lot of new shit to figure out how to do that. But we need that new shit to be something that we can have, mm -hmm. that we don't give up our power to, to these evil systems. Now, this might not be a fair question because, uh, you know, I mentioned Daniel Quinn earlier, and another thing I really like that he said is, you can't imagine what you'll need to do for the future because you're not there yet. You don't really know what the problem is. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, like I'm having trouble picturing a new technology um, that isn't industrialized. You know, a new technology, you know, I picture like Star Trek, transporter. <laughs> but something that's not uh, 
given to us through the exploitation of the earth in a consumer kind of way. Um, and, you know, if you say I have no idea, I think that's a very fair answer. Cause, uh, but is there any way to, to picture that? Yeah, I'll give you an example. Yeah. My water filter that I have in my kitchen is an example of that. So we didn't need water filters before industrialization and especially before um, domestication of animals. Mm. It wasn't a problem. Mm-hmm. We didn't have organisms that would harm us in our water. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that problem is a product of um, recent history. So uh, it's a new problem, and we have to figure out how to solve it. And so this water filter that you bake it out of terracotta clay, and you put sawdust in the clay, and then you paint the clay with colloidal silver. There's plenty of silver already out of the ground, <laughs> right? <laughs> we can do that. We can make colloidal silver at home. So like all of the pieces of it are replicable by the people, um, but it's new. It's a new idea. It's not an indigenous idea, <laughs> yeah. right? When and, I would... and and also, of course, lots of credit needs to go to the fact that a lot of these ideas that we're using are indigenous ideas. And if we don't give credit for that, we're kind of being pretty shitty. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. When people talk about like going back, I mean, anybody that does this kind of stuff runs into somebody saying that like, mm-hmm. oh, you want us to go back and live in caves or we can't go backwards. And uh, one of the ways I've learned to view that is it's not I think our culture teaches us time as this linear tube that we're going down. Yeah. And, you know, when I start studying, like, Aborigines in Australia, for instance, they don't see time like that at all. Mm-hmm. It's more like this three-dimensional landscape. And I don't see our culture as, like, having evolved where we, we're saying, like, put on the brakes and go backwards. Right. It's more like we've left the thing that works, created a whole lot of damage, and it's more of a return instead of a regression. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I see a lot of these skills um, that used to work making sense in not in a going back kind of way, but because they, they still work if you live in a way that isn't discontent, that doesn't need like more and more, more comforts, more distractions, more entertainment. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I agree with what you said about the new technology too. When I was teaching kids survival skills at camp a couple summers ago, we'd get to water and I'd tell them this should not be a survival skill. This is a <laughs> reflection of what we've done. Mm-hmm. You know, before, if I was teaching like 600 years ago, kids had to survive We'd get to water and I'd say, go downhill, you know, I mean, basically, um, we've lost so much. Yeah. I felt like I had something else to say as usual. And, uh, you know, brain fart every episode when I'm, I mean, we're sitting here in a garden, um, surrounded by wild plants, a lot of them. And I just love that because while the soil, while the land was more fertile, I've read that, um, kind of in this area of North Carolina, it never really was that fertile. It wasn't meant to have huge crops of cotton and tobacco and this and that. So we're we're working now from a place where the land is so completely depleted and we don't want to keep feeding into the narrative that, oh, if you just buy some fertilizer and you put that down or you use some whatever osmocote type of, you know, soil pellets or whatever, that that's going to help. So, yeah, I can see where the, if there is new technology, some sort of way to, you know, well, humanure, that's not really a new technology, but it's bringing it to the present day where, you know, we didn't use it and now we're using it again. It's kind of new, Mm -hmm. but not to take credit away from from those cultures. I know a question I had. Um, The colloidal silver. Teresa, you had showed Teresa the water filtration uh, system you had. And I was really interested until she mentioned the colloidal silver because there's two things that interest me. One is primitive skills that I can do right raw from the land. The other is scavenging, things that I can upcycle because I figure trash is a 
you know, it's going to be a part of the natural landscape for a long time. Metals yep. will learn how to use it. Yep. And colloidal silver, I was thinking, well, that sounds like something you had to go to a hardware store and paint on or something. But you just said you could make it from the land? Well, you can make it from silver. I don't actually know how. It's just sort of like a, a, a thing that, that ticked off in my brain when I was looking at, at this water filter. I was like, oh, yeah, cool. These are all things that we could make. And it's probably not 100% necessary if you're, I mean, you're using the terracotta pot to kind of filter through. There's, a, there's also charcoal in it. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, the water is coming from rain. Mm -hmm. So we're taking a lot of steps already to help it to be... Uh, a very healthy, non-diseased water right. to drink. I mean, arguably, one of the cultural shifts that we're going to need in order to um, to keep having human existence be viable is um, Western culture has a notably low tolerance for risk, yeah. especially middle-class and upper-middle-class culture, and especially white culture. <laughs> So we're so sensitive to any yeah. harm to our bodies that we overlook lots and lots of other important things like connectedness. And we, we sacrifice a lot of other things on the altar mm -hmm. of safety. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, probably pretty reasonably you could drink rainwater with mechanical filtration and not worry about, like, disinfecting it in terms yeah. of bacteria. Um, I don't know all the details on that, but it would be a shift that would make sense to me to make. <laughs> yeah, I think I get what you're saying with the... Uh the addiction to safety, but isn't it so ironic, you know, that that the same culture that makes us so skittish and so afraid of risk, I mean, we're taking the biggest risk ever known in humankind, right. you know, I mean. Right. We're risking extinction. Yeah, so much of what we, you know, <laughs> almost daily, I'd say, Teresa and I come across some news story, some philosophy, some headline that we're like, that's completely upside down. Mm -hmm. Like they've actually taken the truth, turned it completely upside down and made the reverse seem credible. Right. And yeah, that's another another one I'll add to that list. Yeah, speaking about water, um, it's called Rainwater Collective, mm -hmm. the intentional community's name. Why rely on rainwater catchment rather than digging a well? Mm -hmm. A few reasons. Um, one is that by relying on rainwater, it, it makes us more connected with weather and with seasons mm -hmm. and more dependent on what's going on in our watershed as a whole. Mm -hmm. So one of the... the crystal clear, like life-changing things that I heard when I was visiting Living Energy Farm was Alexis mentioned, like, we don't ever want to have water just coming out of a tap or electricity just coming out of a socket as if it, as if it was limitless. Mm -hmm. So a well, just like electricity coming out of a socket, provides this illusion that the resource is completely limitless. Yeah. So you get disconnected from the cycle that, that actually you need to be part of. In order to be healthy and be connected to the land. I totally agree. We were just talking yeah, about yeah. that in um, this season. Like we're on what the fourth or something episode. And we just talked about it because I went to visit my mom and living in her house for a month. I felt totally disconnected and I started to take everything for granted. Right. That, you know, oh, I want something hot to drink. Well, I don't have to go collect firewood, make a fire and wait for the water to boil. I push a button. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's seemingly limitless and it is not. Right. So that's a really good point. And I love what you said about being connected to the weather cycles and seasons. I was telling you before, like when we collect rainwater, it's not on a large scale. Um, we basically, we worry about it when we need to worry about it. 
Um, but this past year with the pandemic, they've shut off a lot of easy mm. ways to get water from a water fountain, which mm-hmm. again, limitless, right? Until they shut it off. Right. <laughs> And then you really start to get keyed into, oh, man, it's going to rain tomorrow. We better set up the tarps, find the buckets, clean those out, get ready to store it and fill it up as it comes down. So, yeah, right. I really the, appreciate the, that. One of the key messages that I want people to take away from this is that that kind of dependence on natural cycles, like, you know, if you listen to your television, it's like, oh, that's un- inconvenient and it makes you less happy. Mm-hmm. But actually, it feels really good. Yes. And it yes. wakes you up. I know you guys have experienced this. It oh, wakes yeah. you up in a way that you can't be woken up otherwise. Yeah. I mean, one of the things like, yeah, God, I've got so much to, <laughs> I don't even know how to put it in words because this, this just like rings so true. But the precious, we're doing the praise hands. We're doing the praise hands. <laughs> the preciousness of things like, Often people will uh, try to do us a favor by saying you can come over and take a shower. And there are days that we're definitely like, yes. <laughs> but if I'm around a hot shower much, it's like my body feels like it goes numb. It doesn't mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't feel like that when I walk down to the river. It never goes numb. It's always a baptism, baptismal, uh, a baptism. Um, oh, yeah. Spiritual. Said that. <laughs> yeah, it, it is completely spiritual, and it yeah. never is not spiritual. Um, there are days when it's a bitch, you know? Like, sometimes <laughs> what I've found about spirituality is a lot of times we, we kind of think it's all butterflies and sunshine and gentle breezes. Sometimes spirituality kicks your ass. It's a fucking asshole. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's always present. It's alive. And that's what I get from bathing in the river. And uh, even the hot water, like if I occasionally go take a hot shower, it's special because it's not... But it's even though I'm turning the knob for that one shower, I haven't sunk back into the push the button kind of mindset. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's that way with lighting, with mm-hmm. starting the fire, with cooking, mm-hmm. um, the effort, you know, just the character of the fire. Like sometimes there's so many different faces of fire. Um, and food. Yeah. And, you know, food could become precious to us again instead of being this garbage that kind of flows through our life. Yeah. <sighs> and that's something I wish I was better at um, learning myself. And I to keep learning and to share with other people is that this isn't about doing without. Mm-hmm. This is about getting what you're actually looking for. Yeah. Like you keep buying crap, you keep upgrading, and you keep feeling that discontent to get something better. It's never good enough. But once you start bathing in rivers, it's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> Even when you're cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes especially when you're cold, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that shit don't wake you up. I don't know what will. <laughs> right. And look at, I mean, the the other way of looking at it, too, is you have so many people living in their boxes, and how content really are they? Yeah. I mean, the suicide rates, yeah. not just for adults, but for children. Right. Yeah, about about half of Americans have suicidal thoughts in, yeah. a, in a given year. So. Do you remember the, <laughs> we did an episode called Nature Therapy, and one of the things we talked about was the suicide rates, and uh, you remember that number you got for... Young people? Well, what was I the think, percentage? Well, I don't know if it was a percentage, but it was like the second leading cause of death in ages, I don't know, like 12 to 24 or something yeah. crazy yeah. like that. Yeah. Jesus Christ, the best technology we've ever had, you know, and <laughs> which should be, you know, putting us in the Star Trek wonderful universe. And uh, I mean, that many people are just don't want another day of it. That's crazy. Yeah. It's clearly not working. Yeah. Sorry. Speaking of technology, <laughs> it's just kind of intruding. <laughs> And Teresa, do you have any other, 
I know we're getting to the end of the questions that we had. Uh, do you have, and also you, if you have any questions for us or anything that you're thinking of right now, like, man, that got me thinking about something else, but before we kind of wind down. I do have a question for you guys. Um, so, you know, you've mentioned that one of the things that, that you're missing is kind of that sense of connection to place and having an ongoing connection. I'm just curious if there are any silver linings or things that have been uniquely personally or spiritually valuable for you guys from not having an ownership relationship with a piece of land or even mm. from not having um, like a sense of permanence with relationship to a piece of land. Because, of course, that's like been part of human history, too, for many people in many times. Wondering how that's been for you guys. You want to answer that first, Teresa? Well, I'll, I'll just say the thing that popped into my head is the same, same fame thing. The same thing <laughs> that we were talking about with pushing a button. If I'm in a yard, yes, I can appreciate it. But if I'm only in that space, whether it's a creek or a, f- a certain part of the forest or whatever, for a few days or even a few weeks or even a few months keeps me in a state of awe. Mm. And I feel like if I were to pass the same thing every day, yes, of course I would grow to have connection and I'd need to keep my eyes really open Mm -hmm. to watch those ants crossing my path at a certain time of day, to watch for the, the subtle opening of the, the, what am I trying to say? The may apples or, or whatever fruiting of mushrooms. Um, because otherwise, I sink back into that same feeling of, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm here. Mm-hmm. That's where the toilet's at. Mm-hmm. That's the kitchen area. So, yeah, it to me, it allows me to kind of keep on my toes, to kind of keep that sense of wonderment. Yeah. And to add to that, I think kind of what you're talking about, Teresa, one of the things I feel like is a silver lining to that is getting the best of so many places. Mm. Um, there's this poem that, you know, I, I loved and I shared with Teresa. Now we both like are always kind of quoting this poem song of the open road by Walt Whitman. <laughs> and he talks about the, the kernel of the, the best of things, you know, just this traveler. And, uh, I feel like we get a little bit of that. Like I, I, we get a relationship, like a close relationship because we're, we're not camping. We're not paying to be there. We kind of live there for a while with like some of the most beautiful rivers, some of the most beautiful spots on the river, um, these fields on these pretty days to start a fire. Um, We've got so many places we go where food's already growing, you know, the Mm -hmm. the wild tending. I want to interrupt. Because it's not ours, also it keeps that that feeling of like we are guests. Mm. And so like really being on our best behavior to really respect the land and not, again, not take it for granted. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, I appreciate what you, you added. And I would, uh, I feel like I can't say that without, I know you're talking about what are the, uh, the good things, but I feel like I always have to add the caveat that mm-hmm. I don't have the, as deep a relationship as I would like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's a constant annoyance for us that I imagine you don't have to put up with, um, being out here is the people that are out here for the most part, I would imagine are, your guest, you have a relationship with them or co-inhabitants. Mm-hmm. Um, we are constantly in what we call tweener spots. You know, there's like, <laughs> you never know. constantly trespassing and breaking laws. You never know when we're going to show up at one of our beautiful, like most sacred places on the creek and see like somebody just left trash. 
Oh, not that there's tweens in the place. I thought that's no, 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 no. Usually, that's a totally different podcast. Yeah, usually it's some sweaty old guy, but but yeah, people. We mean like between places. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's constantly it's it's tough to share it, and not only share it. I feel like I could share it better if I felt like it was respected, but with people that don't seem to respect it. Mm. Like uh, just yesterday, we're at one of our favorite places to bathe. I mean, just this place that's kind of off the path, and it's gorgeous. Um, Most people, I think, would overlook it. And now they're, like, redoing some kind of sewer easement out there. So there's, like, all this crap, like, silt getting into the water and everything, and just the powerlessness of there's nothing we can do about it. Um, So we're struggling with that because I also feel like a lot of indigenous people were Mm semi-nomadic so we're trying to get as close to that as we can like Mm -hmm. that's why we're in durham for like about six months Mm -hmm. and then we go to the mountains and we're largely there for six months we're trying to reproduce as much as we can not just drifting i feel like that was attractive when i was younger but now i'm in my mid-40s and now i want to drift as much as i need to Mm -hmm. so i'm more interested in roots than just being a tumbleweed yeah Mm-hmm. There's this Wendell Berry quote that's painted on a sign um, mm. over there that uh, is, there's no such thing as unsacred places. There's just sacred places and desecrated places. Mm-hmm. And so y'all um, traveling, not having the uh, legal and sort of social power to protect places from becoming desecrated. Yeah. It's like it's putting you in contact with grief yeah. over and over again, you know, for what's being done to the earth. And that seems like both were like really spiritually important and fruitful and also like really kind of painful yeah. yeah and the challenge i appreciate that too because we're constantly having to adapt mm-hmm. but uh with that said i think it kind of hones us in kind of a scout kind of way mm-hmm. but it also where our energy is not always up for that so sometimes that turns into just neglect uh just like eh, let's just go and get some fast food mm-hmm. um you know it's we it's, fall into that same thing about oh my god i just need the comfort and it's not really even what we're looking for. It's just like the only thing that we can do anymore. Yeah. So the no, more I nomadic, <laughs> the more nomadic way we live in a van, I feel like it's got the potential to kind of hone maybe sharper skills than being on one place. But uh, it's a challenge, and we often fail that challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of folks finding their way in different ways, being able to be in conversation with each other and work together and, mm-hmm. and finding kind of different pieces of the puzzle. Um, so I really value what you guys are doing. I have a yeah. lot of respect for it. Yeah, and likewise. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, I guess one of my uh, last questions I have is, um, you know, what would you like people to know about um, the Rainwater Collective? And um, I don't know how much you want to put yourself out there, like how much you want people to know about it, um, mm-hmm. but... Just what would you say to people that are interested, that want to know more, that uh, is there any kind of help you're looking for, um, oh, yeah. just anything of that nature? And also keeping in mind, this is kind of the last question, like if there's anything unrelated to that you want to. Sure. Well, um, we, uh, you know, gratefully uh, accept any donations of uh, money or or. Uh, industrial materials that cost money, <laughs> like lumber, <laughs> pieces of metal that can be made into roofing, those kinds of things. Um, but but generally speaking, like, yeah, we, um, we accept visitors. Um, we have to be somewhat careful not to be, like, inundated with a flood of visitors. Uh, yeah. So the best way to, to find out more, if you're interested, is to reach out to um, me. My contact information, I'm sure, will be somewhere on y'all's 
Well, we actually thing. don't. Yeah, if you <laughs> if you want people to contact you, this would be a good time to say it because we don't really uh, have like a written out thing. Okay, great. Very much. Um, so yeah, the easiest way to reach out to me, I'm Rachel Watersong. You can reach me at rachelwatersong at fastmail.com mm-hmm. um, and and just kind of start a conversation about whether you might be interested to just to learn more about intentional communities in general. I'm happy to hear questions about like, oh, how do I start collecting water in my apartment? You know. Um, or if you're interested in coming out uh, and visiting us or coming out to help out with a work day. Nice. Great. Anything else, either one of you, before we... Yeah, I just want to say that this is a really nice space. I love what you're working on here and uh, the the welcoming committee that came <laughs> up and and just all the, uh, the artistic energy of the place. I, I really like what's going on here. Thanks. So thank you. This has yeah. been a really fun interview. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the big things I'm getting from this uh, interview and talking to you is uh, a re-emphasis on what I already theoretically know, but you're doing it, is how much we need each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Teresa and I talk about a lot about we're kind of antisocial, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that we actually connect over is how much we don't like people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like, you got to reach out. you got to find your tribe because... You know, like I said earlier, we're not meant to do this by ourselves. You can't. So I appreciate uh, you for co-hosting the interview, Teresa, and you for being interviewed, Rachel. Yeah, thank you, Rachel. So that's a wrap. That's our interview with Rachel. Um, I really enjoyed talking to Rachel. I, uh, you know, she definitely is somebody who's thought deeply about the uh, things that she's doing and has a lot of uh, intelligent observations and opinions on things. Um, One thing that was brought up in the interview that I wish I'd pushed a little bit harder um, because she disagreed with me on it, and I think it would have been a really fruitful topic to delve into more, is the race issue. And I said, uh, I think, you know, our, our media, our culture exaggerates the racial divide. Um, you know, I would have liked to have gotten more into that Um with Rachel to see, you know, what her thoughts on are on it and hear more about why she disagrees with that. But, you know, if you've never uh, been in an interview kind of format or had to lean into a podcast, it's amazing how easy it is for your your mind to go blank um, and kind of trail off. But what are some of your reflections on uh, your listening to this interview, Teresa? Well, yeah, I was also writing down um, some things that were brought up, you know, not really even a podcast about race, but yeah, I did. Um, I guess I liked what Rachel said about, this is a shit sandwich. No, (laughs) I I like what Rachel said, um, when she was talking about how we, you and I as white people, um, we were talking about this earlier today before the interview, how we are so separated from our tribe, from our indigenous roots that we really, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I, I don't want to paint it like, oh, white people are, you know, boo-hoo, we're the victims, but there are a lot of wounds that we don't even know how to heal because we have absolutely nothing left of our indigenous roots. Yeah, I struggle with the uh, the white supremacy, as Rachel said, kind of baked into our culture. Um, again, I wonder if it's one of those upside down truths that we're calling something um, 
I mean, in one sense, it's undeniable supremacy as in taking control, you know, and we go into another country and, uh, you know, eradicate the people, take control of them, even the paternalism, you know, whether it's supposed to be compassionate uh, control or violent control, um, that it's hard to deny that's a form of supremacy. But there's a sickness. I guess it's more privilege. That's a word that I don't like. Um in that we're so cut off from our tribe that we were listening to a Snapshots last night. Snap Judgment. Snap Judgment. Um, great podcast, storytelling. And it was about a, what tribe was she, Sioux? Yeah, Lakota Sioux. I believe Lakota Sioux. And she was talking about her struggles with, like, the government kind of separating her tribe and her trying to get back to her tribe and, you know, a lot of the social issues that she was dealing with that. And I was thinking, on one hand, I felt really bad that the government was, had, uh, done so much to her people. On another hand, I felt almost envious that she has a people, you know, a tribe, an identity, even if it's like under such attack and been drugged through the mud so much that it sometimes feels almost unrecognizable. Um, I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, how would I even begin to touch that? How would I even begin to reach out to, here's my tribe? You know, if like maybe the majority of my bloodline is French, for instance, which I don't know that it is, I can't just go to France, you know, and really find, I mean, what the fuck, croissants? You know, is that what's left of my tribe? And even that, you know, when you start finding out, like, in a first world country, you know, like, these things we think are uh, rooted in that country, often you find out, like, you know, tomatoes weren't in Italy until South America was found by Europe. Potatoes weren't in Ireland or Poland. Um, even those things are not really your native roots. So... Yeah, I would have liked to have talked more about that. Um, really interesting stuff. Yeah, and um, oh god, what was I scribbled stuff down here? Um, what Rachel was talking about, like building social structures from scratch in the intentional community. That being the one of the biggest parts that's intentional is that people that are wanting to join this tribe this community, um, they're going to really have to do some personal work. I also wrote down, um, yeah, Gumby, I agree that there's a lot of what I think is, I think is an example of critical race theory in the statement, like white supremacy being baked into everything. Like I'm looking at, uh, rain catchment barrel at this farmer's market that's a farmer's market that's in this town that, you know, has a lot of signs up about the Revolutionary War and, and this and that. And I guess, yeah, I guess I could find all sorts of things that are baked into what I just am seeing that's, you know, white supremacy if I want to find it. Or I can just look and see that there's a rain barrel at a farmer's market in a town. Yeah, and what Rachel was saying about, you know, and I largely agree with that it's a problem with the system rather than pointing to any group, even if it's not a racial group, like the rich people that are the problem. Um, I do agree with that on one sense, but even, you know, if I tie that back into white supremacy, it's never been the white people. It's certain a certain class among the white people. And that same class seems to be you know, if not the problem, which I agree, it's it's bigger than that, but a big uh, part of the supremacy, who's, who, you know, what do we mean by that? Supremacy, the people taking control. It's always been a certain class of people, and now that that class is becoming more diverse, like, I would now put 
you know, Oprah Winfrey in that class. I would put Barack Obama in that class. I would put any number of people that are, you know, starting up businesses, you know, especially in third world countries so they can get cheaper labor um, to make shoes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that what we call the 1% is getting increasingly diverse. So I don't think it's ever been about supremacy, uh, a racial supremacy. It, that's almost accidental. I still feel like, you know, when we, uh, racism gets brought in to kind of confuse the issue more often than not is my feeling on it. And, um, you know, always the poor people, whether they're white or not, it's never been a get out of jail free card. You got a great life because you're white. Um, it's never been that in my reading of history. Um, I've always known poor whites that are struggling. Um, you might say, oh, well, they're white, you know, they're, that's because they, uh, have this mental problem or whatever, you know, they could just, all the opportunities are there. I could say that about a lot of other races of people right now too. And you might ask, why do they have these bad habits, these mental problems? And, uh, you know, I find trauma, trauma down their bloodline, just like we all share. So that's one thing that interests me. And, uh, again, I, I hate to get too much into this topic because it can start to feel sort of like, oh, now I get to have the last word. But, uh, yeah, I think Rachel would have a lot of, uh, very intelligent and thought out opinions on this. And, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll do another interview with her at some point. Maybe she'll listen to her interview and write in and then we could read her listener write in in the future. (laughs) Wink, wink, Rachel. Um, and I guess to finish out that shit sandwich, um, (laughs) I, I also like, liked what Rachel said about that we are all people like we're inherently like we're good people. Um, it's not about, it really isn't about black, white, purple, green. It's that we are all people and we're all struggling with stuff and we're all like in some way, in some way we are or were good people. And, uh, that's what I have to say about that. And I just had one other thing. Should I go ahead? Okay. So, um, I was wondering, Gumby, do you agree with what Rachel said in the interview when she was talking about, uh, people ducking in and out of society? I think I might have understood this right. Um, is it really something to escape society and then to like rejoin society? Is that really something that's only available to those with intergenerational wealth? Huh? I mean, my opinion on it, my simple answer would be no. Um, Intergenerational wealth. I'm trying to think of an example. I guess maybe the hippies of the 60s. You know, what do they call those? Trust fund babies? Mm. I guess that would be a good example. Like, go join the fringes, join the hippie commune, don't take a shower, uh, eat out of trash, you know, live in the woods. And then as soon as you're done with that little fad, you just come back and bingo, right back into society. Um intergenerational wealth. I do believe that it's easier in that way, in the trust fund baby kind of way, but I don't think it's, because I've never had, I don't have intergenerational wealth. God knows I came from a poor family. Um, I lived in an all-black neighborhood growing up, and we, our family was the poorest family in that neighborhood. Um, I think anyone in that neighborhood would have, would have agreed. It wasn't just an opinion. It was like, man, they are a mess. We were white trash. Um, And I've managed to duck out of society and find my way back. So, yeah, I guess if I'm just going to boil down the simple answer, I say no. 
Mm-hmm. I don't believe it's only open to intergenerational wealth people because what I do is I'm just smart. You know, it's not because I'm white. Um, God knows white people haven't shown any great genius at intelligence as a race. <laughs> but I, you know, organize my money. I recognize like, okay, here's my little nest egg. You know, if I want to have a ticket back into society, I don't touch that. Things like that. And that can be enough to like, at times, you know, buy some beat up old car, um, find a job, you know, and if you say, well, employment isn't open to everybody, um, I'd say it is, you know, I'm looking at the fast food restaurants, I'm looking at the landscape and crews, and I'd say I usually see a minority of white people or definitely not a majority. Um, so I'd say it was as open to anybody to get those jobs. And those were the jobs I was getting. I'm, I'm not a white collar worker. Um, so yeah. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, I think so. And I'm not like, again, I'm not sure if maybe I just misunderstood her comment. Um, I would also say, you know, there are people who, um, let's say they worry about what is this going to look like if I step away from society, um, go live in the woods, whether it's in a, in a community or, you know, by yourself. And then if you want to come back, you have to justify, uh, being away for, you know, six years or something. I just pulled a tick off my crotch. Yeah, that was actually really not needed to be said, but it was impressive. (laughs) Um, I was impressed how you just rolled with it. I didn't even hear you pause in your statement. Maybe we're too used to that. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And he's holding the iPad in his other hand. That's dexterity, baby. Um. So, yeah, I guess I would, to to answer my own made-up question there, I would say you, if you're, again, if you're intelligent enough about it, you could probably figure out a way to actually work that to your advantage. But then I'd also ask the question, why the fuck are you rejoining society? Look at this shit. It's blowing up everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I'd, I've also been somebody who's ducked out many times and come back many times, so... You know, I tell people sometimes it's like tipping over a soda machine. You just can't do it in one go. Not not some people. You got to rock it back and forth a few times. And and you know, I I used to be a recruiter um, for big companies. If you really need help with this, I'll I'll give you one. Think of all the experience that you would have stepping away from society, and then for whatever reason you're coming back. Like think of all the ways that you would be outside of the box. Like what you could bring to an organization because you've seen things from a different perspective. I mean, not everyone can cobble together shoes out of, you know, upcycled materials and, and rock it the way Gumby does mm-hmm. <laughs> as an example. So, yeah. Um, and Rachel, if you listen to this episode, please write in. Um, I'd love to hear your further thoughts on it. Um, But yeah, I guess that's, you know, without making this a whole different episode, we'll (laughs) end that conversation there with these observations. For our listener right in for this episode, we've got Eric from Livingston, Texas, and I will do a Texas accent. Oh, boy. Unlike Teresa, I'm keeping up the the accent (laughs) tradition. Um, If we can't make fun of our listeners, Teresa, I mean, we might get popular and then, like... (laughs) You know, that that could cloud our hobo lifestyle. This is the only thing that we have now that the podcasts are providing is entertainment. So it's kind of like, ha ha, you listen to one of our episodes, take that. <laughs> All right, Eric from Livingston, Texas, he writes, Right, 
my interpretation of Animal Farm was always it doesn't matter what system is in place or who controls the farm because the farm is the problem. So it doesn't matter what system is used within civilization. The problem is civilization itself. And that was in response to The Last Pig in Europe, in which we talked about uh, George Orwell's work. And, uh, yeah, I thought this was appropriate for this episode because, as Rachel was, was pointing out, you know, it's not who controls it as much as it is the system itself. Like, the farm is the problem. And uh, how to handle that? I guess that's one of the things we're exploring with people like Rachel. Um, there's so many ways that people are exploring this, but I would just say... God bless the people who are exploring it. If it's still theoretical for you, test those theories. Um, do it now. Yeah, do it now. Whether it's living in your van, whether it's uh, you know throwing on a backpack and hitting the Appalachian Trail for a few months just to get away from it for a while, whether it's uh, teaming up with your neighbors to start an intentional community. All of these have potential, and uh, God only knows when it all falls apart um, which one of these paths will thrive and which ones will uh, kind of wean themselves out. You know, so it's good that we're trying all these different things. That's diversity, and diversity is strength. Anything you want to say to that? Um, thank you for, Eric, uh, thank you for writing in. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So if you would like to send us any questions or comments, uh, visit our website, Don't Don't try to find that website. I don't know. We are not high right now. No, not even a little bit. <laughs> www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in, what's the first B word you can think of? Black Lives Matter. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. I asked for it. Weebly as in blacklivesmatter.com. Um, we've got a donate button if you are moved, if you've been entertained, educated, or um, just feel sorry for us. You know, like send us a donation. We are always happy to receive a donation. And uh, we've had some generous donations. Um, not for quite a while now, but man, yeah, we're very thankful for the ones we've received. Um, very happy about that. And we've got a Facebook page, which uh, we put all kinds of offensive crap on. So feel free to check that out. Um, God, what else? We got a YouTube video, so YouTube channel, and we put YouTube videos on there. And even if you're not uh, interested in our philosophy, if you're just like, "Geez, what a couple of idiots! I can't stand listening to their voices one more minute." Okay, well, these do include our voices. You can put but, it on mute and read the uh, transcription. Yeah, and you know what's better than our voices? Our faces. <laughs> so check out our YouTube channel. Um, and am I leaving anything else out, Teresa? Nope. You're good. You just got an ant crawling on the iPad. That's all. All right. Tick up my crotch and on the iPad and we're out. Bye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids. So why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't